This morning I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day he got into a boat with his, with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And when they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Sovereign and triune God, as we approach you in your holy word this morning, help us, I pray, to see Jesus. Lord, to see who Jesus is in his humanity and in his deity. Lord, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to respond in faith and worship. Lord, help us to trust you in every season and circumstance and storm of life for our good and for your glory. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Well, there's something about the water especially about being on the water. Perhaps it's the extremes. The waters both draw us and make us fearful. We can spend hours looking out over the water. For me, at least, being a, on a boat is, is one of the most relaxing places that I can be. However, there's also been a number of times when I've been on a boat when I've been absolutely terrified. Well, as we think about these things, as we think about the, the calm and the terror of being on the water, we see in this a, a real apt metaphor for life. Life can sometimes feel like you're cruising on a sailboat between tropical islands. And at other times, you feel like you are caught in a raging tempest on the North Atlantic. My grandfather was born in a born and raised in a small fishing community called Burnt Point in Newfoundland. It's on a, a peninsula that, that juts out on the eastern coast of Newfoundland into the North Atlantic Ocean. And it's an area that is infamous for its tempestuous seas as the mighty nor'easters crash into the island. Well, it's no wonder that my grandfather's favorite hymn was We Have an Anchor. Now, I'm saddened that most hymnals today don't have this hymn, so many aren't familiar with this, but I love this hymn. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life, when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Will your anchor hold in the straits of fear, when the breakers roar and the reef is near, while surges rage and the wild winds blow, shall the angry waves then your bark o'erflow. We have an anchor that, that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. 
fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. The storms of life may batter you, but for the Christian, the storms of life have a powerful and redemptive purpose in drawing you closer to Jesus Christ. C.H. Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. In our passage this morning, the disciples are quite literally battered by a raging storm, but this storm will throw them against the rock of ages. With this passage, Luke now shifts to another subunit. He's transitioning from his focus on the call to faith in response to the word to the call in faith in response specifically to Jesus because of who he is. Because of who he is and his authority over all things. And this subunit is going to take us all the way to Luke chapter 9, verse 17. And in the, the coming weeks, we're going to see the, the, Jesus calming the sea here this morning and casting out demons, healing a woman with a chronic flow of blood, resurrecting a dead girl, sending out the twelve, feeding the five thousand. And all of this makes people wonder who Jesus is. Jesus has power over nature. He has power over demons. He has power over disease. He has power over death. And these displays of Jesus' power, as they make people wonder who Jesus is, are preparing us for that crucial question in Luke 9.20. Who do you say that I am? We'll see people respond to Jesus with fear, with faith, with rejection, with commitment. And in our passage this morning, as Jesus' humanity and deity are on display, we'll see a very powerful response to Jesus as he's revealed to be truly God and truly man. Question 25 of the Baptist Catechism asks, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? I feel like I should be singing this as we, we do this with our kids. We just did this one, just finished it last week. Who is this Redeemer of God's elect? Answer, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, so and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and in one person forever. Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. When you see his humanity and his deity, the only proper response is faith and worship and adoration and trust. I have a very simple outline this morning, only two points. In verses 22 to 24a, we'll see that Jesus is truly man and he's in our boat. And then verses 24b and 25, we'll see that Jesus is truly God and must be trusted. So Jesus is truly man, and he's in our boat, and Jesus is truly God, and he must be trusted. Jesus has already revealed his power over nature. Remember back in the beginning of Luke chapter 5, with the miraculous catch of fish. While well, Jesus is now going to perform a more spectacular miracle, with the calming of the storm. This miracle is, is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This miracle is, is one of Jesus' best known. Well, well, it's, it's probably one of the most sung about miracles that we, that we have in our hymnals. 
I've already referred to one of him. I'm going to refer to, to several more as, as I go through this passage this morning. But the miracle is not the climax of this passage. The climax of this passage actually comes in verse 25 with the question on the lips of the disciples in response to the miracle, in response to Jesus' challenge of their, of their faith, where he says, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is the climax of this passage. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He can be trusted in all circumstances. You can trust Jesus. But the question comes, do you trust Jesus? So verses 22 to 24a, Jesus is truly man and he is in our boat. Verse 22 begins, one day he got into a boat. Seems like a pretty innocuous beginning. Luke isn't specific here, but Mark tells us that it was on the evening of the day when Jesus had taught in many parables. Mark 4, 35. It was the same day that Jesus told the parable of the soils and the parable of the lamp under the basket that we just looked at and several other parables as well. Now, I just preach two sermons on a Sunday, and I'm wiped out after the second sermon, but it, it looks like Jesus taught pretty much all day. He preached to the crowds pretty much all day, and then when he wasn't preaching to the crowds, he was explaining to the disciples what his messages meant. So now he got into the boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Luke refers to this body of water as a lake, as Lake Gennesaret. In Luke 5.1, he, he refers to it as such, and, but the other gospel writers refer to this body of water as the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's this, this body of water is fresh water, roughly 20 kilometer, 21 kilometers long and 13 kilometers wide at its widest point. It's about, it's about half the size, half the area of Okanagan Lake. And Jesus wanted to go across to the other side. And a boat would get him there much more quickly than he would get there on foot. Now the boat that, that they got into was a fishing boat. This is the same word that Luke uses in chapter 5. Fishing boats at that time were generally six to nine meters long, and they had a, a mast and a sail, but they could also be rowed. So Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples, several of, several of whom, remember, are fishermen from that very area. And they knew this lake well. This was their fishing grounds. And Mark adds that there were other boats with him. And as they set sail, Jesus fell asleep. Now, such boats often had pillows aft so that those who weren't working could, could go and lie down and rest while the others were working. They could, they could work in shifts. Jesus is obviously tired. Again, he's been, he's been engaged in ministry throughout that entire region. He's been teaching all day. The crowds are with him constantly now, and he, he needed a rest. Have you ever had a season in your life when it's just been go, 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 and, and it's, it's like you're, you're busy from the moment that you set your feet on the ground to at the end of, the, of a very long and tiring day, you pull your feet up. Many people in our, in our congregation have, have jobs where they're working very hard all day, every day. Trust except for the, the Lord's day. Many moms here can relate to this. They do this seven days a week. And, and often, at least in my family, through the night as well. When you finally get an opportunity to rest, to really rest, it's like gold. 
Well, now imagine that you get to go to sleep in a boat with the fresh air, the gentle rocking, the sound of water lapping against the hull. I think some of you are falling asleep right now. It's really one of the most refreshing sleeps you will ever have. This was the calm before the storm. Jesus was tired. At times, he got thirsty and he got hungry as well. He could feel physical weakness and physical pain. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't just have a divine nature. He was truly human as well. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not now have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. I already referred to question 25 of the Baptist Catechism. Question 26 follows logically. This is the one we're working on in our family this week. The question is, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer, Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. It means a rational soul. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Now this issue of the humanity and the deity of Christ is vitally important and one that has been, has been attacked in the visible church throughout history. That's why many of the creeds and confessions that, that, that have existed throughout church history refer to this very principle, that of, of Jesus as God and man. And, and eminently, we, we see this in the, in the Chalcedonian Creed, which was, uh, in, which was brought together and convened in Chalcedon, Asia Minor, which is now Turkey in the year 451. And this council was brought together primarily to deal with the heresy that Jesus Christ only had one nature, some sort of strange mix of, of divine and human. But the creed affirms that Jesus Christ has two distinct natures in one person. Now again, this is, this is mysterious to us. This is something that, that, that our finite minds can't begin to really comprehend. How Jesus Christ can, can at the same time, be, be God and man and one person. Two natures in one. Well, this is what the church historically taught, has taught. This is, what, this, is what the, the, this is what the Bible teaches. Let me just read a little bit, little bit of the creed. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting of, here's that word again, a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time, one substance with us as regards his manhood. I, I really would recommend that you read this and study it. Look at it with, as, as a family. It's really only one paragraph. It teaches a vitally, many vitally important truths about who Jesus really is. Jesus Christ is one substance with the Father in his deity and one substance with us in his humanity. One person in two distinct natures. The Son of God took on human flesh, a true body, the same as us in every way, yet without sin. 
Now Jesus, not long after the calming of the storm, would turn his attention and his direction towards Jerusalem and the crucifixion where he would bear our sins. And by being truly God and truly man, this is the only way that we could have him as a redeemer. This is the only way that redemption can be accomplished and applied. Jesus Christ needed to be fully man in order to pay for our sins because it was man who sinned. And Jesus Christ needs to be fully God in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus Christ was in the boat with his disciples and Jesus Christ is in the boat with us. Jesus is in our boat. Jesus, as Jesus slept, a windstorm came down on the lake. This was a, a sudden storm, a, a fierce gale with violent winds and crashing waves. Lake Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, is almost 700 feet below sea level, below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the bottom of what is essentially a giant bowl with, with high hills and, and mountains on either side, especially on the eastern side of the lake where, where you have the Golan Heights. And what would happen quite often in the Sea of Galilee is that, that cold winds would, would rush down the slopes and then would meet the, the warm air above the sea and, and the winds would churn up into a, a violent maelstrom. And because the, the lake itself is relatively small and relatively shallow, only the average depth is, is less than 100 feet, it would be immediately, like a, a storm in this, in this small body of water would become violent instantaneously. Now, if you've been in the Okanagan for a while, you've seen some of the lakes that can blow up on our lake as the, as the wind funnels from the south and, and blows into the north. And, and there could be some quite large waves on Okanagan Lake. There's actually, you might not realize this, but you can actually surf on Okanagan Lake at Squally Point, just south of, of Peachland, where the lake bends. And there's a point there where, where you can actually surf. I've seen very high waves there, four or five feet high. But these waves on the Sea of Galilee were much, much higher than that. There was a storm recently in, in uh, March of 1992 that, that hit Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee where the, the waves were recorded at over 10 feet, 10 foot high waves. Was, these are violent storms that, that blow up on the lake. But who knows how high these waves were? The boat was getting tossed around like a children's toy. The waves were crashing over the gunnels and flooding the deck. The boat was getting swamped. It looked like they were going to sink. They were in real danger. Humanly speaking, they were in real danger. Jesus, humanly speaking, was in, in his humanity in real danger. But he slept. He slept. Remember, several of these men were, were seasoned professional fishermen. These men were sailors. They knew this lake well. But their intimate knowledge of this body of water did not make them less afraid. It made them more afraid because they knew what this lake was capable of. But there's Jesus, asleep in the back of the boat. 
J.C. Ryle says that it is only true that sight and sense and feeling make men very poor theologians. These men were looking around at their external circumstances and they were terrified. Everything around Jesus was in turmoil. The wind, the waves, the boat, the disciples. But he is fast asleep. Have you ever been with someone like that? Someone who is calm and peaceful no matter what is going on around you. My friend Sequoia is like that. Some of you would have met Sequoia from, from when he came to visit from Australia. And Sequoia's name is very apropos. He's built like a tree. And Sequoia is a, is a firefighter. It's really the, the perfect line of work for him. There is no physical peril that phases him. I've been in, some, in several potentially very dangerous situations with Sequoia, and he's always been calm. I've never seen him be phased by, by anything, that any physical danger. But there's, there's one time in particular that appropriately comes to mind. We were body surfing on the Gold Coast the last time I went to visit, just before, before Liam was born. And we were in quite large waves out the back. And this was, this was deep water. This is where the, you usually only find surfers back there. You, you couldn't touch the bottom. And, and I was scared. I'm not usually afraid of big waves, but these were, these were large. And I was, be, I was beginning to, to feel a little bit of panic setting in. And if you're ever in a dangerous situation and you panic, the, the, danger, is is, the danger level is raised exponentially. But there's Sequoia with me in the water. And he says, John, look at my eyes. Totally calm, totally peaceful, like nothing was wrong, like we were standing on the beach. And I immediately felt peace because of, of his presence. And I, I asked, actually, in preparation for the sermon, I, 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 I messaged Sequoia and, and just said, you know, what is it that, how is it that you stay calm under these dangerous circumstances? And he said, well, well in part, he's, he thinks that's the way he's wired. But, but for him, really, the biggest thing is, is the fact that he knows that nothing surprises his Heavenly Father. So he thinks about the, the omniscience of God. The fact that, that God is there with him in whatever circumstance he faces. And, and as a firefighter, you can imagine he, he faces quite a few dangerous situations. And so here I was, like in a... In a, in a, like in a, in a washing machine on the spin cycle, but was able to be calm because of the presence of my friend. Now, sadly, at this point, this was not the response of the disciples. They did not respond with calm. Jesus, however, knows who the Father is. And Jesus knows who he is. And so his calmly sleeping represents a, a, presents a stark contrast between him and the response of the disciples. And so the disciples rush to him and wake him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. In Mark, it's, it's save us, Lord. Rather, in, in Matthew, rather, it's save us, Lord, we are perishing. And in Mark, it's, it's teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, this isn't an inconsistency in the scriptures. They were all yelling to Jesus 
for help. This is a cacophony of cries. This was the storm in the storm. John Calvin describes their reaction. He says they're, they're in a wild panic of consternation and reckon they cannot be saved if Jesus does not wake up. The disciples go to Jesus, but not with the understanding of who Jesus is. We're like that sometimes, aren't we? We get consumed by, by our thoughts and, and by our fears, by, by what is taking place around us instead of preaching the truth to ourselves. And even prayer in those times is often rare. We focus on the storm and forget who is in the boat with us. Please turn with me for a moment to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses, uh, verses 4 to 7, and really I would argue on to, to verse 9, is, is a very powerful passage in dealing with trials and anxiety. If you, if you struggle with anxiety, I, I want to point you to this and suggest strongly that you memorize this passage. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. First in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he's He's saying, always, in every circumstance, rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And why is that? Because the Lord is at hand. In whatever circumstance you are facing, wherever you are in life, brothers and sisters, the Lord is at hand. He is with you in the boat. And so because of this, grounded in this, because of the presence of the Lord, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here we are told that, the, that God is with us, and now the peace of God is with us, and then in verses 8 and 9, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't be focused on what's going on in the water. Don't be focused on the storm. Focus instead on what is pure and just and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy and I can't think of anything that is more those things than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself in the midst of the storms of life. There's many other promises that you can preach to yourselves in, in Scripture and as you think also about the, the attributes of God. But again, the attributes of God are most powerfully demonstrated in the gospel. As Jesus Christ took on flesh, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, bearing the, pen the punishment, the penalty for our sins. As the Father's wrath was extinguished for his people on him instead of on us. As he was raised on the third day bodily from the grave. As he ascended to, to heaven, as he intercedes for the saints, for you at this very moment. Preach this to yourself. 
Paul continues in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So you see that we're, we're told that the Lord is at hand, and that we're promised as, as, we, as we consider these things that the peace of God will be with us, and now that we're promised that the God of peace will be with us. Brothers and sisters, God is with you in the boat. Well, now in verses 24b and 25, we see that Jesus is truly God and must be trusted. In the second half of verse 24, Luke tells us that Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Mark includes Jesus' words, Peace, be still, Mark 4, 39. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Now, you don't normally think about someone rebuking an inanimate object. I mean, you might, might be tempted to do this if you, as you bang your, your thumb with a hammer. You might be tempted to get mad at the hammer, but who's wielding the hammer? Rebuking the, rebuking the, the winds and the waves doesn't make sense to us. But remember, Jesus had rebuked Peter's mother's, mother-in-law, mother-in-law's fever, as, and he had he had rebuked the unclean spirit in 435. And these things make some commentators suggest that, that this is a demonic battle. That this isn't just a natural storm, but this is a, a demonic storm. But this really doesn't fit the, the flow of, of the broader section of, of Jesus' authority over all things. We've already seen it again and again, Jesus' authority over the demons. And what we're seeing now is Jesus' authority over nature. Now, when Jesus, when Jesus spoke to the, and rebuked the wind and the waves, realize he didn't have to speak out loud. You know that, right? Jesus didn't have to actually say, peace be still, in order for the, the wind and the waves to be at peace and still. As Calvin explains this, it's not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reached the elements, which are devoid of, of feeling. Jesus is revealing his power for the disciples. In his humanity, Jesus had been sleeping. But in his deity, he is controlling everything. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus was holding together the hydrogen and oxygen molecules that made up every single drop of water in that lake. And every single droplet of water on every body of water on the planet and in the clouds as well. Jesus didn't need to be awake in order to calm this storm. Jesus is still upholding every droplet of water on the planet by the word of his power. Jesus wasn't in any real danger, nor were the disciples. And we mustn't just, just consider things like from a human perspective, but from a spiritual perspective. Like the hymn, Master, the tempest is raging. No waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of the ocean and earth and sky. The storm ceases immediately. 
This is the calm after the storm. All is calm except for the, the hearts of the disciples, as we'll see in a moment. Usually when a storm at, at sea ends, what happens is the, the winds gradually die down. And then sometime after that, the waves slowly ebb. But not this time. In this instance, William Hendrickson paints the picture, wind and waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of a solemn silence. He says, something comparable to an evening stillness of the starry heavens settles upon the waters. Suddenly, the surface of the lake has become as smooth as a mirror. Instantly. At the decree of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people look at this passage and, and wrongly conclude that this passage is about Jesus calming the storms in your life. It's about Jesus. They say it's about Jesus calming the storms in your life. Yes, it does teach that Jesus is sovereign over the storms of life, like, life, like the hymn, Be Still My Soul. The waves and winds still know the voice of him who ruled them while he dwelt below. Jesus is still the sovereign of the seas. Jesus is sovereign over the storms in your life. But Jesus isn't always going to calm the storms in your life. But there's a calm that comes over your soul when you understand that Jesus is sovereign over the storms. The storm might still rage, but there can be a calm in your boat. You can be asleep in the boat when you know who's with you in the boat. The storm might even capsize your boat. You might even sink below the waves. This reminds me of the end of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when, when Christian is crossing the river of death as he approaches the celestial city. And he sinks below the surface in fear. But his companion, hopeful, calls out to him, these troubles and distresses that you are experiencing in these waters are no indication that God has abandoned you. Rather, they are sent to test you as to whether you will recall to mind the evidences of his past goodness and now rely upon him in the midst of your present trials. Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And with that, Christian exclaimed in a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. This is from Isaiah 43. Verses 1 to 3 reads, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And, though the, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But again, the calm that, that Isaiah is experiencing here is, is, is reflected in, in the calm that Christian experienced as he was crossing the, the river of death. He was dying. But he knew the calm that comes from faith in the Lord Jesus. The storm may even kill you. But God is sovereign over the storm. 
And now comes the storm after the calm. The storm, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is in the disciples' hearts. Jesus asks the disciples in verse 25, where is your faith? The storm isn't the only thing that gets rebuked here. These disciples have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but they don't respond in faith. They've just been taught from the parable of the sower that the, the, the seed that is sown on, on, in rocky ground withers because it has no root. It withers when, when trials come. And now it looks like the disciples are withering. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I can identify with the disciples here. I can think of, of times in my life when there have been severe trials, and, and it's looked like my faith has been with, has withered as well. For a season where I've, I've struggled with, with fears over, over external circumstances, and I've forgotten who was in the boat with me. And I don't know about you, but one thing that I'm more prone to do in those situations is, is try to take matters into my own hands. To try to control the external circumstances to, so that, that I feel better. Again, I'm forgetting who's in the boat with me. I'm forgetting who my God is. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I think it's a relatively common human experience. That's what fear and anxiety is. It's, it's really trying to, ex, trying to control your circumstances by yourself. It's, it's really functional atheism. And we all do this at times, and some of us are consumed by fear and anxiety. The disciples fail, and so do we. But the Lord Jesus loves them, and the Lord Jesus loves us. There is mercy in his response. When Jesus asked them, where is your faith? He isn't telling them that they have no faith, but that their faith is not being displayed. Are you struggling to display faith in the midst of trials? Please come and talk to me or talk to someone else in the church who can give you biblical counsel. And there are many people in the church who will be able to walk you through this and pray with you through this and, and point you to the word of God and point you to the who God is in the midst of your trials. This is what it means to be part of a church family. To walk together through the storms and, and trials of life. But the storm isn't over yet. Verse 25, and they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? They're not afraid anymore of the storm outside the boat. That's over. They're afraid because of who is with them in the boat. It's beginning to dawn on them, or it's to, to gather on the edges of their minds who this really is. They're beginning to consider who Jesus is. And this is preparing us for the, the declaration, for Peter's declaration in, in, in later on in chapter 9, in the middle of chapter 9, starting in verse 20, where, where Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we should have a holy fear in the presence of God. We should have a reverent awe in the presence of the holy. 
all through the Old Testament, the calming of the sea is presented as the prerogative of God alone. God is with them in the boat. Jesus is Yahweh, the same one who had caused the flood to come upon the earth in the days of Noah. The same one who had caused the waters to recede. The same one who had caused the the waters to part on the Red Sea. The same one who had stopped up the waters on the Jordan as the people of Israel crossed over into the Promised Land. In Psalm 89, verse 9, we read, You rule the raging sea. When its waves, waves rise, you still them. Jesus is the sovereign of the sea. Jesus is sovereign over all. Trust him. Trust him. I highly recommend that you read Jerry Bridges' excellent book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. And I would recommend that you read it now before the trial hits. It will be a comfort to you in a trial, but it's so much better to prepare yourself for the trial before it comes. Here's a quote. In the arena of adversity, the scriptures teach us three essential truths about God. Truths we must believe if we are to trust him in adversity. They are, God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. And God is perfect in love. If these three things are true, if God is truly sovereign, is truly omniscient and is truly loving, then you can trust him no matter what is happening in your life. Bridges continues, someone has expressed these three truths as they relate to us in this way. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best and in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. Preach these truths to yourself. Preach God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's God's love. And you will feel the peace that passes all understanding. God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The the peace of God will be with you even as the God of peace is with you. Physically, you will face storms. Bad news from the doctor. Car crashes. The specter of persecution and violence from a decaying culture. Spiritually, you will face even more dangerous storms. You are at war with the world and the flesh and the devil. You will face the storms of life, but brothers and sisters, you will not face them alone. Jesus Christ is with you in the boat. He is with you in the storm. Maybe you are facing the storm within the storm, the storm of your your own thoughts as the storm rages outside. Without knowing who God is and without knowing who God is for you, then every trial, as one Puritan said, is a double trial. Because you don't know if God is for you or against you. But for the non-Christian, every storm of life, no matter how severe, is just a tiny glimpse of the storm that awaits you in hell. And that storm will never pass for all eternity. Christians, when you understand that you are safe in the hands of God, and even if you don't understand it, you're still safe in the hands of God. You aren't in any real danger. Yes, you are at war 
with the world and the flesh and the devil. But Jesus Christ has won the victory for his people, for those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 4. You do not need to live in fear. You are being preserved by the sovereign God. You are safe in any storm as you are asleep in your bed at night. As Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32 read, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths, and courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad when the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The external storm may continue to rage. But by God's grace and for his glory, you will reach your desired haven. You will reach heaven through the sovereign grace of your Lord and Savior. Are you in any need? Are you facing any trial? Go to Jesus. Jesus isn't sleeping now. Jesus is wide awake. In his glorified body, he never sleeps. And he is interceding for you before the throne of God at this very moment. Jesus is in the boat with you. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we consider the storms of life, whether we are facing them now, have faced them in the past, or will face them in the future, whether they are real storms or imagined storms, let the storm in our hearts be calm through the knowledge, the perfect knowledge that you are the sovereign of every storm. That you are working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord Jesus, we do pray. We pray that the, the external storms would be calmed. We don't enjoy trials. We don't enjoy difficulties. But Lord, let us, like Spurgeon, kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Help us, Lord, to consider you. Help us, Lord, as we consider who you are and who you are for us. May these thoughts drown fears and doubts. And may these thoughts 
Help us to know you more and to know who you are for us even more intimately. And so help us, Lord, to glorify your name as we walk through trials. Pray this for Jesus' sake.